We've been going through this series. Today is our last day of the series, um, Alter Ego. And we've been talking about laying down some things so that we can walk away with who God says we are. So the first week, we talked about feelings of inadequacy. We said you can't hold on to these feelings. If God made you special and he makes all people special, you can't, you can't believe the lies of the enemy that, that you are inadequate. So we're going to lay that down at the altar of God. The next week we had the need to control and you control freaks walked out of this building and immediately picked back up the need to control right after you gave it to Jesus, right? So you're going to lay it down again. You cannot be in control. Have children. They'll show you you're not in control ever as long as they're alive. Okay. The next week we looked at the right to be offended. We're saying that God says, if you don't forgive others, he's not going to forgive you. So we have to lay that right down. Then we talked about the need for approval, uh, approval of people over the approval of God. We live for an audience of one. We have to lay that down. Last week, we said that God told us that we are his masterpiece, and, and we can't believe that we're junk if we're God's handiwork. And so we got to lay down all the things that the enemy tells us, all the things that maybe you have from your past. You're going to lay that down. Today, we're going to talk about friendship with the world, and we're going to lay that down in just a minute. Now, how ridiculous would it be if you, uh, for a hospital to admit patients to the hospital and then pretend that they're not sick? Like you're at an all-inclusive resort, right? You're dying, you get into room 301, and they come by and they say, here's our calendar for the week. You can go parasailing, you can go snorkeling, you can swim with the dolphins, And you're like, I'm dying. How dumb would that be, right? It'd be ridiculous for a hospital to treat the people like they weren't sick. It's just as ridiculous for a church to pretend that we're not a hospital for spiritually sick people. So we are sinners saved by grace. So I want us to say Christians are sinners saved by grace. Type it on Facebook. Just just humor me. Let's say it again. Sinners are Christians are sinners saved by grace. Christian churches are not perfect places where holy people come to get holier. Churches are places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, confessed, dealt with, and then overcome with the help of God. Because the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to his followers to raise a marriage that needs to be resurrected, to raise Um, a person who is a prodigal, who has run far from God, to bring them back to life. You don't need need a Band-Aid on you spiritually. You're dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You need to be made alive. So a church is where we bring stuff out in the open and we deal with it. Now, because we're sinners saved by grace, when Christians get together in churches, everything that can go wrong usually does eventually. So let me just ask, and you can do this on Facebook as well. How many of you have ever suffered through conflict in a church, any church? It doesn't have to be this church. It could be this church. We're not going to testify about that. All right, a bunch of you. How many of you are currently in a relationship that is suffering some conflict? You don't have to to raise your hand right now. Um, I just was going to see if anybody would. But what I want you to do is I want you to conjure up in your mind an image of the person with whom you're having the most conflict at this moment, right? Get their picture in your mind. And I want to tell you today, what we're going to talk about today is the fact that 
The reason you're in conflict with them has to do with your BFF and their BFF. Now, don't make judgments on that yet. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In um, James chapter 2, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't become a believer in Jesus until after Jesus rose from the dead. He was a skeptic before that. He thought Jesus was crazy before that. He becomes a follower when his brother says, I'm going to die on the cross, I'm going to raise after three days, and I'm going to appear to people. When, it, when that happens, James is like, I believe. James is one of the first leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he writes a letter. We call it the book of James. Here's what he says in 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham, what's that word? Go ahead and put it up there if you would. Abraham what? Believed and it was counted. Okay, so first of all, people always ask me, how did people before Jesus go to heaven? Abraham, if you were here for our our, um, um, starting point series last year, a whole calendar year ago, we went all the way back to Abraham and we said that the Christian faith started with Abraham. God chose the Jewish people, went all the way till Jesus. That's where we went on a very different direction than the Jewish people. So the Jews are still around. They believe in one God, the same God we believe in. But we believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So we part ways at Jesus Christ. The Muslims also go back to Abraham. They, Abraham, they go to a very different uh, direction immediately. We believe, the Jews believe, we believe that Isaac was, was offered on the, the altar as a sacrifice. The Muslims will tell you, the Muslims don't appear for 2,500 years after the Jews. The Muslims will say, oh, no, 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 it was Ishmael, the other son of Abraham that was offered on the, the altar. We do not believe that, right? So Jews and Christians, we believe that it starts with Abraham. It says he believed. You got to heaven in the Old Testament exactly like people do in the New Testament by believing in God what God says. That Jesus hadn't died yet, but you believe. Because so, look what it says. Abraham believed God and it was counted. This is a legal term. So what it means is Abraham was spiritually bankrupt. God, the, 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 the technical term is imputed righteousness to him. Imputed means he looked at his account. It was completely bankrupt. God put his righteousness into Abraham's account. He counted it like a legal term. And then God says, I'm going to declare you righteous. This is amazing to me. And then he wrote, behind, he wrote underneath Abe's picture. So like if this popped up on the computer, Abe's picture, righteous because God declared him righteous. And that's what it says next. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Many times we talk about, that's the next, I don't know if, okay, there it's righteousness. Many times we talk about if someone was justified in their behavior. And justified, you can't justify yourself spiritually. I can't justify my spe- myself spiritually. One who is righteous has to justify me. And the term actually, the way I remember it is this, just as if I'd never sinned, right? I'm a sinner saved by grace. When I'm saved by grace, God declares I'm justified before him, just as if I'd never sinned. Did I sin? Yes, but he imputed his righteousness to me. Because I'm a New Testament believer, it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I am justified before him. God does for the sinner what he can't do for himself. Whenever the sinner says, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need, I need you to forgive my sin and lead my life. And then, then God does something stunning. It doesn't happen in any other religion on the face of the planet, only in Christianity. The next part says, and he, Abraham, was called a what? A friend of God. This is spectacular. And only Christianity has this, where you can become a friend of God. Now, we're going to talk more about that in just a second. Back to conflict in your life. 
So James, a couple of chapters later in in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? James says the the root level of of, uh, conflict is selfishness. If my wants conflict with your wants, we're going to have a battle. I witnessed this last night. So my great-nephew is at my house with my nephew and my niece, and my great-nephew is two months old. And when my great-nephew, who doesn't even speak words, decides that he wants something, there's going to be an argument. He doesn't even know the language yet. He just starts crying, and we try to figure out, you know, what does he need? Does he need, a, does he need a pacifier? Does he need a bottle? Does he need his mama? He always needs his mama. Waylon is four, and Waylon's like, can you take that thing out of the room? Right, because it, it's too loud. <laughs> so, so Carter James had conflict with Waylon, and Carter James doesn't even speak yet, right? You don't even have to know how to speak to argue and have conflict with someone. Am I right? Anybody else? Is that just my, at my house? Okay. What James says is war in our hearts. It starts in our hearts. It always starts in our hearts. Causes war in the church and war in the home. War in our hearts causes war in the church and war in the home. Now, just a few verses before this, if you read the book of James, it's only five chapters and chapter three, and it's very, very practical. It's one of the most practical, uh, somebody called it, um, the gospel in blue jeans, because this is, this is the blue-collar gospel if you read the book of James. In chapter 3, <clears throat> James says that where you find jealousy, envy, and selfish ambition, you find every evil under the sun, and it starts in a person's heart. So, so what we're going to say, here's how we're going to say this. All sin is caused by selfishness. That's on your listening guide. Eve disobeyed God because she wanted what the tree offered. Remember, the the, uh, serpent comes up to Eve and says, look at this fruit, the one thing you can't have. God's provided everything. Let's hang out next to the one thing you can't have. And the Bible says, because Eve looked at it, saw that it was desirable. We don't know whether it's an apple or not, but just imagine a beautiful red apple hanging there. It's in the heat of the day. Maybe you're a little bit, you know, the juice is going to just taste good and it's crunchy. Ah, she saw that it looked good. I desire to have this fruit, whatever fruit it was. And then the serpent said, because when you eat it, God knows you'll be like him. God's holding out on you. Did God really say you're not supposed to just eat it? And so she eats it all because it was a selfish desire in her heart. It looked good. I want to be like God, which really means I want to be God. I don't want God to tell me what to do. I want to be God in my life. She took the fruit and ate. She handed it to her husband. He ate. It all started with selfishness. Abraham, the founder of our religion. When he's going down, he's been walking with God for a while now. He goes down to Egypt, and it says that Sarah, his wife, was beautiful. She was so beautiful. He said, if we go to Egypt, they're going to kill me and take you as their wife. So lie for me and say that you're my sister. So she did. All kinds of bad stuff happened because because Abraham didn't trust God. Abraham was selfish and wanted to preserve his own life more than he wanted to protect his wife. Bad stuff happens. And so, what is the middle letter of sin? Somebody help me out there. I want what I want. I don't care what you want. I don't care what you want. That's the bottom line of sin. Now, Proverbs says it just a little bit different, but it's basically the same thing. Pride leads to argument. arguments. What is the middle letter of pride? Coincidentally, it's I. 
I have eye trouble. I'd rather do my thing than your thing. Every married couple should memorize this verse. Every person who ever thinks they might ever be married should memorize this verse. Because my pride keeps me from admitting I'm wrong. And all it does is stirs up conflict. Now, back to James. Now, James had already said this. I'm going to read this to you again. It says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? He picks up, verse 2. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. How'd you get to scheme and kill because of selfishness? <laughs> you ever seen somebody kill a marriage because of their selfishness? You ever seen somebody kill a business deal because they wanted a little bit more than the other person? You ever seen somebody kill a job because their pride, I want what I want, I don't care what you want. You scheme and kill to get it. You will kill a relationship, you'll kill a business, you'll kill your reputation or someone else's reputation because of pride. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So what do you do? You fight and wage war to take it away from them. And then look at this. This is amazing. You don't get what you want because you don't ask God for it. Well, I ask God. Well, then he answers that. And even when you do ask God for it, you don't get, get it because your motives are all wrong. Because you won't, it, you're me, me, me. Give me more pleasure, God. God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Why aren't you being a genie, God? Selfishness always leads to the wrong actions, which leads to wrong praying, which always leads to war. Somebody help me out. I know Mary knows this, but somebody else help me out and tell me the last of the Ten Commandments. You can just second, Mary. I know you know the Ten Commandments. She, she could have won $100 if she'd have been here that one day. I asked. I didn't think anybody knew the Ten Commandments, and I was offering $100. I am not offering that because I knew she'd be here today, and she'd win that $100. Does anybody know what the last of the Ten Commandments is? Number 10. You, you know it's thou shalt not, and then there's one word. Who? Covet. Kelsey knows. Good job. What? I didn't offer. Somebody got some Monopoly money on you? Just, uh, I'll write it out. I'll write it here. 100 bucks. I'll do that. Thou shalt not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments, and you can violate every one of the previous nine commandments if you allow covetousness to get in your heart. I want what I want. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I don't want you to be my God because I want to be God. You can break every one of the Ten Commandments, the previous nine, if you are selfish and you allow war in your heart. And you need to know some of the most unhappy people on the planet are selfish people. Instead of being thankful for what they do have, they're complaining about what they don't have. They're always looking for that magic ingredient that will make their lives better. But the real problem is what's already in their hearts. It's selfishness. It's at war. And when I thought about this, I thought about that. Go ahead and click on it, Braden. I thought about this, this video, um, and it's, it's from that deep theologian, VeggieTales. Hello, I am the Englishman who went up a hill and came down with all the bananas, leaving, of course, the inhabitants of the hill with no bananas and therefore bestowing the term selfish upon myself. I know, but I've got all the bananas. So the whole point was, I love that voice. You are so selfish. You need somebody. I need somebody at times just to whisper, like, like this is the Englishman who went up the hill and got all the bananas. You are so selfish. You need that. I need that, right? 
Most of our problems would be resolved if we looked in our own hearts. If we examine our hearts and said, there is sin there, there is selfishness there. I am so selfish. And that's what's causing conflict. And sin, every sin is rebellion against God. And God takes rebellion extremely seriously. I want to tell you that before we show you this next verse. Because when you sin, God calls you an adulterer. You adulterers. Don't you realize? Yeah, just kill the background. Yeah, I'm still selfish. Um, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you a what? Go ahead and put that up there if you would, the verse. Makes you a what? And then he's going to repeat it in case you don't get it. If you want to be a friend with the world, you make, your, you make yourself an enemy of God. So I want to ask you, who's your BFF? And I'm going to tell you how you can figure that out. And I'm not talking about a physical person. I'm talking about a spiritual person. All you have to do is look at where you spend your time, where you spend your money, and it will tell you whether you're a friend of God or a friend of the devil, whether you're a friend of God or an enemy of God. Because if you are a friend with the world, you're an enemy of God. And in case you don't know what world means, world means society apart from God. That's the next, there you go. The whole system of the world is anti-Christ and anti-God. And and I want to show you how a Christian gets involved with the world, how a Christian becomes a friend with the world. It happens gradually. So the first one up there, friendship with the world. We we actually go out and, and we become friends with the world. Now, it doesn't mean we don't go and witness to people. What it means is you become like them. You don't want them to know you're a Christ follower. You have this conflict in your heart. I don't want them to know that I follow God. I want them to like me. So I want to be a friend with the world. Next comes stained by the world. This all comes out of Scripture. You're polluted by the world. You don't go and make influence there. You're not taking the light into the darkness. You're not taking salt and delaying rot. You're actually multiplying the rot in your own life. You're becoming stained by the world. Next. Then you begin to love the world, and the world begins to love you. Oh, yes, you approve of my behavior. Good job. Next, conforming to the world. So in Romans 12, 1, it says, or 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world pack you into its mold so you look just like it. And then last, this comes from the scripture. You're condemned with the world. You may be a Christ follower, but you can die in your sin. You're still going to go to heaven, but God says that's enough. I think I put this verse in there. Did I first John 5? Not that. There's a verse next. I don't have it. Okay, here it is. First John 5. That's not his fault. 516. Listen to this. If anyone sees a brother or sister committing a sin leading, not leading to death, he shall ask God... And God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Listen to this. There is a sin leading to death. Or let me take that out. The word A is not in the Greek. There is sin leading to death. He says, I'm not saying that you should pray about that. You shouldn't ask about that. The reason it's not defined for us, it doesn't tell us which sin leads to death, is because it's different for every one of us. Janie and I have seen this on more than one occasion, where someone claims to be a Christ follower but they're so blatantly living in sin that, I, that we believe the Lord said, today's the day, enough, you're coming home. There is sin that leads to death, and you should be very afraid of that if you're a Christ follower. You still go to heaven, but he cuts your life off. 
Now put that, that philosopher up there. This existential philosopher nails Christians when he says this. Existential, he doesn't believe in God. Just we, we exist and then we don't, believe, we, we don't exist anymore. What the world expects of Christians is that Christians should speak out loud and clear, listen to this, in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt could arise in the heart of the simplest man or woman. I read this week that atheists are offended by Christians who say they believe there's one way to heaven, who do not believe it enough to even tell them. They're like, we don't believe it, but we're offended that you say you believe it and you don't even tell us about it. That offends us. As atheists, there's a sin that leads to death. So I'm supposed to pray for folks who, who are in sin, but, if they're, but I don't know when it is that their heart becomes unrepentant, when it becomes so hard that God says, today's the day you're coming home. You've defamed my name. You flipped me off one too many times, and you're not going to do it anymore. Friendship with the world is compared to adultery. Spiritual adultery offends God because in Romans 7, 4, it says that believers are married to Christ. We belong to him just like husband and wife belong to one another. And he expects faithfulness to him. So we have a choice. Friendship with the world or friendship with God. You cannot do both. Now let's find out how Abraham became the friend of God. Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. This is important. It says, the Lord. So we, we know this ahead of time. Abraham doesn't know this immediately, but I think he figures out very quickly. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre uh, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And look what Abraham does. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He's 99 years old at this point. It's hot. All he has is a tent. He's sitting in the cool of the tent, and he's taking a siesta. The older I get, the more I think that you ought to take a 20, 30-minute nap every day at noon, right after you eat, in the air conditioning. He's 99. I'm like, be like Abraham. And he sees these visitors. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm under my air conditioning and I'm almost asleep, and three visitors knock on the door. How do you generally react to that if you don't know they're coming? Not well. Abraham did well. By this time, Abraham's a very wealthy man. We find out in chapter 14, he has over 300 trained men. Some call them servants, workers. 300 guys working for him. He could have said, hey, number 257, go fix some lunch for these guys. That's not what he did. He jumps up. He, he runs. 99 years old, runs in the heat of the day. And he goes up and he bows down to them. And, and the Bible tells it. He says, let me fix a little food for you. But actually, it's a Thanksgiving feast is what this 99-year-old guy does. Because I think he recognized that it was the Lord. He, the Bible says he ran, he encouraged others to do their work. And then look at verse 3. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your, what? Servant by. Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat. Something. Let me get you a little something, a Thanksgiving feast, so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your, what? Servant. Very well, they said, do what, do as you say. So I want to talk about real quickly characteristics of a friend of God and how we can learn that from Abraham. Number one, a friend of God prioritizes time with him. 
He doesn't act like he's asleep. That's on your listening guide. He doesn't act like he's asleep or busy when the Lord approaches. He stops everything and asks them to stay for a while, have a meal, wash up, rest before you continue. Genuine friends spend time, unstructured, unhurried time with people that they love. Abraham said, if I've found favor in your eyes, please stay for a little while at my house. When Janie and I went to uh, Israel back in 2016, we went with my brothers. And one of the things we did was went to the Bedouin shepherds. They have a tent. We were going to have a meal. So we think we're just coming up and we're going to have a meal in the tent. Oh, no, 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 no. You go into one tent over here. And I'm talking the tent is almost as big as this room. And this guy is there. This Bedouin is there. He's probably 70, 80 years old. And, and he, uh, he says, welcome. Come in, my friends. And there's carpet on the floor. There's pillows on the floor. He's like, come, sit down, rest. And I'm like, we are not about to eat and go back to the hotel, right? So we go and we lay down. And he gives us three different types of teas. And we talk. We spent probably an hour, hour and a half just hanging out with this guy. And I thought, this is the mindset that Abraham had. Come in, my visitors. Come in, my friends. I don't have anything else more important to do than to hang out with you, Lord. A friend of God will always have time for God. Um, Number two, a friend of God makes their home with him, and he makes his home in them. Now, this comes from the New Testament. And um, Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. What's the problem with this branch? Does this look good? Can you all see this? How quickly will this burn up? How much fruit will this branch produce? Jesus said, if you are going to be a friend of his, you have to stay attached to the vine or to the the stump of the tree, the main part of the tree. All you need to succeed, he provides. The moment you remove yourself, no longer are you fruitful. And the only thing you become good for at this point is to be burned up to be consumed by something else. This could be the Christian. This could be the sin that leads to death. You remove yourself from the vine one time too often. He will always take you back. But when he knows that your heart is no longer to be repentant, you're good only to be cast on the fire. It's your day to go. He says, if you stay attached to me, my father and I will make our home with you. We'll we'll reveal ourselves to you. Because Abraham prioritized time with God and because he made his home with God, he was abiding with God. In the last half of of chapter 18, we see a different change. The atmosphere is totally different. In the first 15 verses, he's running around. He's the servant. In the last half, he's actually walking with, communing with, hanging out with God, and it totally changes. Look at verse 17. Then the Lord said, this is awesome to me. Then the Lord said, shall I hide or shall I keep secret from Abraham, what I'm about to do. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children, his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. You want to know something special about a friend of God? A friend of God shares God's secrets. That's the next one you're listening, guy. Friend of God shares God's secrets. And if you need another quote for this, it comes from Psalm 25:14. The Lord confides in those who fear him, and he makes his covenant known to them. There's a condition for friendship with God. You will never be God. If you're in any religion that tells you you can be a God, run. You'll never be God. 
but you can reflect him as you spend time with him, as you abide in him, as he shares his secrets with you. And then look what Jesus says just a few verses after he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says this in John 15, verse 14. You are my friends, and what's that big two-letter word? If you do what I command. Disobedient people are not friends of God. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Now, make no mistake about this. When God calls you a friend, it means you're a friend of the king. You're not the king. The friends of the king are like the inner circle. And they get to share the benefit of the king, but they will never be king. They are still servants of the most high God. You stay close to him. You listen to him. He shares his secrets with you. And then a friend of God obeys his commands. Jesus treats us as friends as if we do what he commands. It's really interesting to me that, um, that when, you know, when we did the, the bystander series and we were talking about the first two miracles that Jesus performed, first one was turning water into wine. And the people who knew where the good wine came from were Jesus' disciples and the servants. Jesus shared that. The second one was when he healed the nobleman's um, son from about 30 miles away. The people who knew the exact time that Jesus healed them were the servants of the nobleman. God's always impressed with people who have a servant's heart. Now, Abraham was called the friend of God. But if you keep reading in in Genesis chapter 18, you'll see that, that there's another guy named Lot who lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the only reason he's saved is because the friend of God says, are you going to kill them if there's 50 righteous people there? And God says, I'll not kill them if there's 50. What about 45? He goes all the way down to 10. He doesn't go less than 10. God says, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if I find 10 righteous people there. If I find 10 friends of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy them. And then for whatever reason, Abraham stops praying at that point. God goes down and, and the two angels go and they deliver Lot. Lot is never called the friend of God. I think if you were to look at Lot's life, you'd say he's a friend of the world which meant he was an enemy of God. But Abraham, the friend of God, says, would you go save him? And God says, yes. Now, as Lot and his wife and his two daughters are leaving, the angel said, don't you look back. And Lot's wife committed the sin that leads to death for her. She turned around. She turned into a pillar of salt. and She was gone. God said, you're not going to repent from that, so I'm taking you right now. And I'm going to use your life as a negative example as long as there is a world, the history of the world. A friend of God is going to be near the throne. He's going to be listening to the word of God, enjoying close fellowship with God. He's going to be obeying commands because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We're not handicapped. We're not hindered. We're dead. And we need him to make us alive. But if we abide in him, We can do anything he commands us to do because we're connected to him. It's time that that we lay down friendship with the world and become a friend of God. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for committing spiritual adultery on a regular basis. You called us to radical obedience. We're not even semi-obedient. Give us a passion to know you and make you known, whether it's in Palestine 
Lake Charles, Israel, Haiti, Belize, wherever you call us to go. Turn us into a church that says, yes, Lord, here am I, Lord, send me. God, whoever you've called to go with us to Lake Charles that we don't even know yet, these two individuals, I pray that you move in their heart now, whether they're watching online, whether in this room, and that we go to Lake Charles, you go ahead of us. Lord, I'm going to ask you to save somebody eternally because New Life Community Church decided to be obedient and take your message to Lake Charles. Save at least one person, God, and then knit our hearts together, those of us who are going. When we come back, God, I pray that we have a friendship that's deeper than it ever would have been before because we've gone and we've shared your light with someone else. God, make us into a whole church of friends of God. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.